And you don't have to worry about security either once it's in the cloud. Because, well, it's the cloud. At, at some point, risk management is about losing money. And we instead need to treat it and evaluate it on its merits and not on whether it has a name. Lame, lame, lame. Have I mentioned lame? Once or twice. Today is Monday, October 20th, 2014, and this is episode 89 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I am very well. I'm very well. So uh, go ahead and, and tell us, uh, you know, give us 30 seconds about your experience uh, being a photographer for the, uh, the, the Thunderbirds. Oh, the listeners won't care about this, but oh, all right. So buddy of mine is an aerospace journalist and got the opportunity to uh, be a backseat media flyer with the Thunderbirds while they were in town here in uh, North Georgia for an air show in Rome. So he got to go up as a backseater in uh, Ship 8, which is a two-seat uh, F-16D variety. And uh, he invited me along to be his staff photographer. So I took a whole bunch of pictures and... They'll be, they're being used for stories he's writing on examiner.com and CNN and a few other things. And it was very cool hanging out with the Thunderbirds and meeting all the pilots and the crew chiefs and the maintenance guys and just being around really cool aircraft all day. So it was nice. Very cool. And, uh, I'm sorry if nobody cares about plane things. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an aviation nerd. I can't help it. It's a gift and a curse. <laughs> and, uh, if you're interested in seeing, uh, you- your pictures, they can find, I guess they can find your Flickr feed on your Twitter feed, right? Correct, correct. And um, there's about 60 pics up there. And um, yeah, I, I, please, if you enjoy such things, check out the pictures. You will dig them. Good deal. And uh, any feedback, happy happy to hear. All right. So as, uh, as we usually cover in... In the uh, beginning, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer, past, present, or future. So, jumping into stories tonight, uh, our first one comes from healthcareitnews.com. That is a very specific domain name. Nothing says reputation like healthcareitnews.com. I wonder what they cover. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's a little. Uh, it's a little obscure. <laughs> Anyhow, the title is "Email Hack Makes for HIPAA Breach." So it is. I think you can pretty much summarize or, or guess what the story is about from the title. Uh, so the UC Davis Health System in California had to report or had to notify 1,326 patients that their uh, their PHI, protected health information, had been improperly accessed when one of their physician's email accounts was compromised. There aren't any details, unfortunately, about how the compromise happened, although they do say that they're pretty confident it wasn't the result of phishing. Uh, and they also go on to say that it's, it's apparently part of their standard business process or standard operating process to use email for patient care purposes like scheduling appointments and I don't know, sending x-rays, I guess, other uh, other things like that. What What's also not very clear to me is if this was an internal email system or his Gmail account or actually it doesn't even say if it's a male physician or a female physician, so... I'll use the gender gender neutral there account. Um, but I think it's, to me, it seems somewhat obvious that if nothing else, the email account was accessible from the internet at large, probably. Otherwise, they would have also had to break through, uh, I guess, a VPN system. Um, the reason I wanted to cover this particular story is I think... This is a good example of how data is often kind of bleeding out, right? We in IT often worry about the big sexy things and you know ignore some of the more basic blocking and tackling things like, you know, email accounts and and 
I, I think we can probably guess how this happened. You know, malware on the laptop, or it was a you know username and password that was in uh, you know in the eBay database dump, or or what have you. We don't really know for sure, but there's probably quite a few different ways. Uh, and you know, yet another reason why things like two-factor are very important. Although, you know, my my friends in the healthcare world would would probably uh, be yelling at me right now, saying, "But you know, all those things co- come at the cost of patient care. You know, so if we want to do two-factor, we can't. You know, we can't do um, you know another MRI machine or or what have you. So." I don't really know what the answer is. I think healthcare is one of those industries that's just it, it, it's uh, it's going to be a problem uh, until somebody comes up with some magic silver bullet that I'm I'm just not thinking of. Yeah, you know that whole thing about investing in IT security in the healthcare industry is at the expense of patient care is an interesting quandary for me. And I haven't had enough time to think about it to really have a solid opinion. But there has to be that that right balance because too little and you could be negatively impacting patient care by not being able to keep your infrastructure secure, your information secure, all those sorts of things. So there's definitely that balance. And then too much, yeah, you're taken away from uh, providing services or keeping costs down. So it's... It's an interesting balance. You know, one thing I found really interesting about this article, though, was the last line. So it's talking about HIPAA breaches. And I'm quoting here, breaches involving hacking account for nearly 10% or 3.7 million people of all HIPAA privacy and security breaches, according to HHS data, Health and Human Services Department. So 90% is being caused by non-hacking. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, lines up. I, I did some, I did some work, uh, extracurricular work, of course, looking at at uh, the the public information on HHS's site. They have a, a very nice and accessible roster of data breaches, and I would say the vast majority are lost devices, lost or stolen actual physical devices. So uh, that kind of lines up with what I would have expected based on looking at that data. Um, so that begs an interesting question. If healthcare industry is primarily concerned and being driven by HIPAA, HIPAA compliance, HIPAA breach notification, is breach remediation and mitigation the place where they should be spending their money? Well, you know, that's a good question, and I would also take it even further and say, you know, if there is this philosophical issue about the balance between security and and investment in patient care, you know, is is there a responsibility for HHS to take that more into account, you know, i.e., would we would we as a country or as a legislature or you know on whatever level you want to to say would we prefer to keep patient data safe or to keep someone alive right and and where is that where is that balance at you know is it is it 10 people is it you know 100 million phi records how do you you know i i, I think we've de facto taken this position that it's it's really untenable to let any PHI out and so there's a you know there's a pretty high bar that these healthcare providers have to jump over and you know you could probably say rightly so but um, I, I think there's a there's a deeper philosophical issue that I don't know the answer to I'm just calling yeah it's it an interesting one yeah and and you know we've got some friends who work in healthcare IT, InfoSec, and probably know this backwards before it cold, and are probably just rolling their eyes at us right now, and we apologize for that. Um, we're just sort of musing here without being in that particular segment of the industry. But there's got to be that balance. 
Because you could also argue if I don't secure my infrastructure and I have too many breaches and the fines would negatively impact uh, patient care, or I could get to a point where I've lost um, brand reputation and therefore I'm hurting my community because now uh, potential patients who could be helped aren't coming to my facility. Right. Absolutely. You know, so there, there's a lot of considerations there, and uh, I don't know. But I just found it very interesting that the amount of PII breaches, is only 10% is being driven by hacking right now. So there's a lot of probably just um, non-malicious mistakes going on out there, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. What my my recollection from looking at the data, and again, it's been a, it's been a little while, but um, lost USB drives, lost tapes is a is probably one of the higher ones, followed by stolen devices. And it, what struck me when I was looking through the data was how much PHI is lost from um, desktop PCs being stolen out of doctors' offices. It was quite quite a lot. Uh, so, so yeah, that, again, that, that lines up with, with what I think. The other, the other interesting thing in the article is apparently this is UC Davis's second breach of the year. They had another one back in January that was related to phishing. So I don't, I don't remember the details of that one, but, uh, you know, it sounds like the, you know, maybe two is a trend line. <laughs> well, it is in theory a trend line, but. Perhaps not enough data points to right. draw a conclusion. All right, you're the statistics nerd. You tell me. No, the answer is no. It's really not enough. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, so moving on to our next story. This one comes from the G Data Software blog, and uh, it's a it, it's kind of an interesting analysis of a piece of malware. And I wanted to bring it up for a very specific purpose. So the title here is New Framework POS Variant Exfiltrates Data Via DNS Requests. Sneaky. Which, yeah, which is sneaky. And the what they're saying here is that this framework POS is the same family that allegedly was used in the Home Depot breach. This, this isn't the same specific uh, variant of framework POS, but is uh, you know apparently a new a new variant. And what's unique about this, and what I wanted to bring up, is that the technique being used here is encoding data that's being exfiltrated as DNS queries. And so, you know, if you think back to what we know about Target and some of the others. Uh, the, the data from the POS terminals was being rolled up into files and staged out on a server that had access to the internet and then was periodically being FTP'd out to some server. And this really gets rid of all that messiness. So uh, th the idea here is that the compromised endpoint, the, P the POS terminal, would simply make a DNS query with some, you know, some subdomain encoding or su the subdomain part would be an encoded bit of data that is prepended to the domain name. And when the, when the terminal makes a DNS query to its internal resolver, presumably the internal resolver eventually gets out to the internet, the, the, the DNS server for the domain fetches or catches that request and is able to in turn uh, decrypt or unencode the data. And now we've got credit cards, bing, bang, boom. Um, there's been some, I think there's been discussion about uh, command and control being done this way and, and exfiltration being done this way for a while. I've not really seen a big brand name piece of malware using this uh, previously though. So, uh, what I wanted to bring up is the concept of isolation. And when you think about network isolation, you know, we think about things like, well, you know, having a, having a, a the drop rule outbound from the, from that subnetwork, subnet or whatever. But are we, are we really thinking more broadly about what other 
command and what other channels can get out like DNS? You know, it is it's it's probably not very common for organizations to to think about that in context of a threat model. You know, so uh, you, you may you may do a lot of work to isolate your your CDE or, or what have you, but if you're not you know if you're not carrying that f- through to the end, you know, looking at okay, well, do do my POS terminals need public DNS resolution? And if they do, they probably don't need to resolve everything. And and so you really ought to be proxying it and only allowing the specific things that are needed. And, you know, I think this just is another example, to me at least, that says, you know, I, I think generally we don't really think through from a threat modeling perspective uh, all of the, the ways that things can go wrong. And and that's... That, that's I, in my view, that's why we keep seeing a lot of these these big breaches. Yeah, I think it makes some good points there. There's some other stuff you can do too. Uh, you know, you can use tools like Infoblocks, which have, for lack of a better term, DNS firewalls wrapped around all the DNS activity and watch it. And you can you know throw blacklists at it. There's a lot of things you can do, but I think DNS in general is an area that we don't spend enough time analyzing. It, I, I used to work for uh, Dumbala very very early days of Dambala when primarily their botnet detection was based around DNS traffic. So I got a, a heck of an education in that while I was there. And, you know, one of the things that, that was very interesting to me is most organizations don't really understand how their DNS infrastructure works. It just works. And when you start digging into having to understand how DNS flows and recursive nature and that sort of thing, it's interesting how few people really know it and care about it in large, complex organizations. And it's a great source of log information. It's a great source of um, you know, in- indicators of compromise. It's, there's all sorts of inf- interesting information you can derive from mining your DNS data. And it's an area I think we ignore a lot. You know, one thing I was thinking about with this one is I wonder what sort of size limitations they would have on exfiltrating data. And it looks like a lot of this was exfiltrating commands. Um, and I'm wondering how, how much you could really send out via encoding into um, the host name within, within the DNS query. It'd be pretty small, but of course you could do thousands and thousands of DNS queries. So it could reassemble on the other end. It, it's pretty interesting. You know, the other thing that this brings up, and... By the way, this is a massive, massive pain in the ass for anybody but security. I've seen a number of a number of organizations that have no default routes internally. Everything must proxy to get out. Interesting, heavy security environment. You can do a lot to control what's going on, but it is amazing how much technology out there, uh, IP technology expects and demands default routes. Oh, yeah. And I will say it is a pain in the ass to be a network operating in those environments. But it forces you to proxy everything, which forces you to control a lot of this exfiltration points. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a really effective way to, uh, to address a lot of this. Uh, certainly, I think you can probably still go astray with that, but... uh, And and to be clear, I'm not saying that this is an ideal way of doing it, like having no default routes. I do think if you're going to go down that route, you have to really carefully weigh the loss of nimbleness and flexibility in your infrastructure when you do that, and the cultural impact, and there's so, so many things that come into play, and when you go down that path, that is, you have to be very cautious, right? I'm not saying anyone should go out tomorrow and just say, hey, we're proxying everything and get rid of our default routes to the internet. Yay! Right. Uh, it, it's massively disruptive, but I've seen it. I've seen it in large organizations and it did help them. No, I can, I can believe it. If you're willing to yeah. make that investment, I can definitely see how that would be uh, very advantageous. Now, the other thing that, that, um, that I have seen and read related to uh, to this particular piece of malware is, you know, there's the, the concept of, you know, monitoring your DNS queries keeps coming up. And that makes a lot of sense. 
the thing that I'll tell you is that doesn't scale very well. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a very large organization like my friend Bob works at, uh, you know, you can get into you know the billions of DNS queries a day, pretty pretty easily, and that's that becomes very difficult to to mine. Now, granted, you can look, you know, you you can do some some interesting analysis and focus on, you know, a very very small percentage, but still that can lead to quite a, a large volume. And you know, hey, maybe a lot of that volume is in fact malicious, but at some point you got to be able to start prioritizing how bad is bad, and that's where I think you know where I've I've uh, I've seen some some challenges. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the other thing I would say in general is don't allow direct DNS traffic from your internal hosts. Make them go through a DNS recursive server that you control. Absolutely, that's good advice. All right, moving on to our next story. This one comes from ZDNet, and the title is Average Company Now Compromised Every Four Days with No End to the Cybercrime Wave in Sight. I'm throwing a flag on the play. <laughs> this this is, um, uh, you know, in full disclosure, this is a Ponemon report. Your favorite. You right. love Ponemon. Oh, my gosh, I do. So... Uh, where to start, right? So again, they're saying that um, that there are an average of 1.7 successful attacks per week reported by this uh, the sampling of 207 or 257 companies that they surveyed, and it gets a little crazier, right? Because they they say that the average cost to respond to one of these. Ranges from five hundred thousand dollars to sixty-one million dollars. So that's a lot of that's a whole lot of money, um, and it 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 just doesn't pass the smell test, right? Because you know most of those have to be far less expensive; otherwise, companies will go out of business. Let me ask you something. What does the term compromise mean to you? Well, that's an interesting question because down below they start getting into some of that. So, so they they and I'm, I'm going to read from going to read from the gospel here. They they say that types of cybercrime experienced by respondents according to the HP Ponemon Institute survey, ninety eight percent. Experienced viruses, worms, and trojans. Ninety-seven percent malware. How that differs from viruses, worms, and trojans, I don't know. Fifty-nine percent botnets. Same question. Fifty-eight percent web-based attacks. Fifty-two percent phishing. Fifty-one percent malicious code. Again, what's the difference between malware and malicious code? It's a very fine line, apparently. Uh, denial of service. Forty-nine percent stolen devices. Forty-nine cents. Forty-nine percent stolen devices. It's a is a cybercrime. Well, it's apparently it's a compromise, and then uh, malicious insiders thirty five percent, and and here's where it goes a little even crazier. So malicious insiders were the most costly type of attack, costing two hundred and thirteen thousand dollars on average. Uh, denial of service attacks cost one hundred sixty six thousand dollars. Uh, web-based attacks cost one hundred and sixteen thousand uh, dollars, and what they're what they say is that 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 costs or those costs constitute the combination of business disruption uh, and revenue loss, right? So, you know, I I can't help but think that some of these companies, when they respond to this, they'll say, okay, well. We did a denial of service attack that hit our website that lasted eight hours, and our website generates a hundred thousand dollars every every hour, and therefore we lost you know eight hundred thousand dollars. But before we get too far off this, let's go back to this list too of sure. the types of cybercrime. One of the things I noted you already picked up on, which is that virus worms and trojans and malware and malicious code are three separate categories with botnets. Um Define for me the difference between malware, virus worms, trojans, 
and malicious code and botnets, please. I I would love to. However, mm-hmm. I can't. Right. They're also mixing exploit vectors with payloads in this list. Yes, absolutely. Right? Phishing is the exploit vector, right? Okay, so they have 52% phishing attack. And then they loaded something with it, probably, right? So these stats make me just make my head explode because this clearly, I don't even, <laughs> I'm not even sure that this is a useful point of reference for anybody other than, yes, this happens. Yes, it's difficult. Uh, you know, go, go back to your summary. I just wanted to point that out that, these stats are just nonsensical when you really get into it. And so I'm wondering, are these just random words that they put on paper? I need to, I would love to know more about their methodology. They threw it at these folks. Maybe they threw it at a thousand, 257 chose to respond. And this is what they chose to respond with. So clearly this is not scientific. No, that, that is you, you hit on a very important point, right? Because Ponemon, what, what they will send out a survey to a very large number of companies, I don't know the exact number they did here, and then they'll they'll count those that respond. And it is very unscientific because if you have, let's say, all uh, petroleum companies, you know, all, if that's who responds, you're going to have a, a relatively skewed data set. So it so statistics is hard, and you know that that proves it. It's it's even harder when you don't do a good job of. Of putting things into buckets uh, that make sense. And they certainly didn't put things into sensible buckets here. As far as I can tell, what they did, I guess, is they probably provided a couple of, uh, you know, fill in the blank for, or uh, I should say a couple of default uh, selections for, you know, what, what, what did you experience? And then a couple of fill in the blanks. And so you probably, they probably had some people writing a malware and, and, uh, and then botnets. And, you know, again, I don't, there's no difference between, between those four most, by most people's reasonable people's definition. Uh, and, and, and also, I think the whole concept of the 1.7 attacks, successful attacks per week is, is really just a, a non-starter. Non, it's it's not a sensible thing because yes, you know we have people getting crypto lockered all the time. Yeah, it's really you know it stinks, but it doesn't cost two hundred thousand dollars to respond to. Um, and we we do see DDoS attacks, but hopefully we have our DDoS mitigation service. You know, hopefully. They're not throwing in the cost of their DDoS mitigation service in, you know, in what this thing, what their business impact was. So to me, these kinds of reports are really useful to, um, to put your budget forward to your executive management and not a damn thing else. It's, you know, it is a, it's a, it's just a words on a paper that you can take to your management and say, here, look, look how important and dangerous the world is. And it really has very little scientific backing. So that's what I have to say about that. I'm done with the story. We should move on. Watch out for Ponemon. <laughs> By the way, if any of you are ever, uh, you know, ascend to the ranks of a CIO or CISO and someone comes to you with a Ponemon report, Send them packing. Unless, unless of course, you're going to turn around and use it with your CEO. Or, for a small fee, Jerry would be happy to pick the report apart for you with them in the room. (laughs) That's true, too, yes. All right. uh, There's a small small extra fee if we make them cry. (laughs) Yes. Ah, all right, our next story comes from Ars Technica, and the title is Ghost in the Born Again Shell, Fallout of Shell Shock Far From Over. Hang on, I need to get my duct tape to wrap my head. Go ahead. Because otherwise, my head's going to explode about halfway through, through the story. Well, I'm not going to go to the crappy part of the story. At least I wasn't going to. Okay. But, 
but whatever. So here's the you know here's the story with this, uh, and hopefully it's pretty obvious, right? Shell Shock release hit the hit the news, and lots of proof of concept code hit hit the uh, the internet, and the presumption is that a lot of malware authors and general bad people took some of that proof of concept code and created their own um, delivery mechanisms and implanted some unknown, some yet unknown number of uh, malware on systems, which I think we can all safely assume are just sitting there biding their time to come in and launch the mother of all cyber attacks some point in the future. But again, the the point of this article is that hey, it's great that it's great and all that you went and you patched all your stuff for Shellshock, but you know, for a while there, if it was on the internet, it was and it was exposed and, and exploitable. It's it could very well have been infected, and when you patched it, you didn't go and clear up the infection, and hopefully, you know, we've we've got that all clear cleared up now, right? Because I know it's a very confusing thing that applying the patch to bash doesn't remove malware that may have already been... Well, this this really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I just ran malware bytes on my Linux server. It was fine. Good. That's yeah. good. <laughs> so, All right, let's back that up for a moment and examine that critically. Couldn't that be said about any server that has any exposure to the internet at any time, all the time? Well, I think I think so. But it, and so, therefore, aren't we just saying that what we've said continuously on this show, which is assume all hosts could become compromised at any time, and make sure that you have good compromise detection, absolutely, and a plan to deal with that, absolutely. The, the the only sensible response to this is either A, what you just described, which I am a for, firm believer in, or B, re-image it all. You know, just say, hey, we have to assume that it was compromised because, you know, some arbitrary... Any, by the way, I guess we actually have to throw the server away now, don't we? Because they could have infected the BIOS, too, I mean. And any server with an audio earshot. True. I mean, the whole data center is tainted now. This could be an appropriate application of our on-demand air gap service provided by the Velocipupti. That's true. That is true. Just let her loose and she will chew through all those cords in about 10 minutes. And you will be secure. Uh, uh, totally. But um, but no, I, I, I think it is the, the, the core point of the article, I believe, is valid that you have no assertion, you have no no way of knowing that it wasn't compromised. And I would say even even more than normal, right? Because now you have this situation where you know for for certain that the server was sitting out there vulnerable to something that would let somebody run arbitrary code on your on your system. Uh, so so I would say that that's a little worse. It gives a little more certainty that something bad might be going on. But the only real response is, you know, doing forensics, which is expensive and non-deterministic, or re-imaging the suckers, which is, you know, also very expensive. Or just assuming that all hosts could be compromised. Yeah, yeah. And and mo- yeah, monitor and look look for evidence of impropriety. <laughs> Good word. So we're skipping over the whole responsible disclosure debate segment of the story, right? Uh, yeah i i uh, I threw up a little in my mouth when I read that part. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's another statement in here too that that I did want to take exception with, which is. Quote, it wasn't until Shellshock was publicly disclosed that it became a real threat, end quote. I strongly disagree with that statement. So the assumption is that the researchers who identified Shellshock were the first 
to have identified it. And nobody else in the history of the past 25 years ever identified this problem. But wait, didn't I send you a, an email from 1996? Or was it 1999? I filter all your emails to trash, so I probably didn't see it. <laughs> I, uh, there was an email on, on the bug track list from the 90s where where some people were discussing the very oh. bug that became known as Shellshock. So my point backed up right there. So it became wildly known and hugely popular, and script kitties jumped all over it. But to assume that somebody else didn't already know about this and wasn't already actively exploiting it as a zero day is incredibly naive. We don't know for sure, and, and, and people have looked for evidence of this happening in logs previous to disclosure, and maybe they'll find it, maybe they won't. But just in general, to say that the threat exists once it's disclosed is not correct. So we don't know who others might have stumbled upon this. We don't know if they were actively exploiting it. We don't know if they were exploiting it very carefully and quietly, uh, as is often the case with very valuable zero days. Or it could have been that the Google guys were the first to discover it and such as life. So, but I just didn't want that to go by without at least critically examining it and going, mm, no, don't think so. But and the other thing is that we have other mitigation techniques other than just patching. So once we know about it, even if a patch isn't available or we don't want to patch it, there may be something else we can do, whether it be even just from a monitoring standpoint or some other layer of defense uh, that we can utilize. So it's silly to say that people shouldn't disclose. I don't want to open that whole can of worms, but uh, it frustrated me. <laughs> You know, it, it is an interesting thing, and and I kind of understand. I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with it, but I kind of understand where they're coming from. The, the I think the point is that once you push out exploit code, the problem goes from chronic to acute, right? Because now you got everybody and their dog, uh, and and Rob Graham, uh, scanning your <laughs> scanning your crap. Oh, but I will counter that. With you now have everybody and their dog, and not Rob Graham, patching and aware of it. Well, I, that's certainly that's very true. Well, oh, but but as uh, I think another another point brought up in the article, which I think is is a reasonable thing to bring up because we saw it with Heartbleed and we saw it with Shellshock, and that is that there's this really uncomfortable, awkward period where people don't have any freaking clue what is impacted by this bug, right? And they got to go through this, this, this process, the seven stages of death or whatever, you know, to, uh, to, to go and, and, and actually get off the dime and start patching their crap because, you know, Hey, do I have bash? I don't know. Do I have bash? I'll figure that out tomorrow. <laughs> but at least in the case of these massive, big media events, I think it prompts people to move more aggressively than they would otherwise. Oh, clearly so, yeah. I'm, I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing at all times. I think people can overreact to some of these. Poodle is a great example of people vastly overreacting. But I just... A patch is not your only option, and sometimes a patch makes things worse. I mean, we just saw, we saw that today. This week, uh, Microsoft pulled yet another patch, Tuesday patch. Yep. Yep. Right. So uh, we knew when when some of the initial bash patches came out, they introduced other problems, or they didn't fix the problem fully. More people. This is going to be a continuous state of affairs. Is my point. We can't keep freaking out. We have to have a way of being able to handle this ongoing in a sane, not very stressful manner, or we're going to burn out our systems. Completely agree, and I I, I do want to go back to the you know. The second half of the story is, again, as you pointed out, about responsible, you know, about disclosure. The, the, the philosophical discussion, is it right to disclose it like that or is it not right? And I think it's kind of an academic discussion because 
at some point it's it's going to get out there, right? So you can't, especially when it's open source, it's, you know, particularly when it's open source, it's really easy to figure out what the heck's going on, right? You, you can, unless it's some obscure crypto thing. <laughs> yeah, especially when a patch is issued. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're gonna, it's gonna get out as, uh, you know, what's, what's going on. So you're, again, this is just an academic discussion for the most part. Uh, there really is no alternative. It's, you know, it, it's gonna get disclosed. Period. End of story. As you point out, we've gotta figure out how to handle it in a scalable, sensible way. And by the way, Poodle, has, I think, for a lot of organizations, been an absolute unmitigated disaster in terms of response because, you know, we have as an industry, uh, and I mean IT industry, not necessarily InfoSec, um, we've, we've gotten, you know, we've gotten, man, that is really distracting. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Uh, um, Andy was showing me uh, Caesar, the information security cat. Um, <laughs> he decided to jump up on my desk as we were recording because I wasn't paying enough attention to him. So clearly, the appropriate thing to do is come sit in front of my keyboard. That's right. That's right. That is one good-looking cat there, too. But anyhow. Um, <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> meow. <laughs> I completely derailed your train of thought. I'm yeah, so sorry. Yes, oh boy. Um, so, yeah, whatever. <laughs> It was an epic thought. Too, oh no, no, no! They killed it. No, we, we. It was about. It's back on the back on the topic of poodle, right? So, so the the issue here is, we we've got to get off of this. Uh, you know, the, being like Pavlov's dog when a vulnerability with a name and a logo, however terrible the logo might be, uh, is disclosed, and we need to get on the. We need to get back to the fundamentals of figuring out what is the risk to our business or to our organization uh, you know, with this thing existing versus the risk to trying to fix it. And I think that in retrospect, Poodle is going to be one of those things where we probably would have been better off leaving it in place for some period of time than running out and breaking all kinds of stuff. Well, this is the art that goes into the science having a really good understanding of all the interplays between availability, use, use case, viability of the exploit, criticality of the exploit, and making a tough call. It's, there is not always a perfect answer, and it may be different for every organization. And in this case, hell, we're talking about technology that is really old. Yeah. It's pre-TLS, right? Which... You know, a lot of people call TLS just rebranding of SSL because Microsoft had a hissy fit, but that's a different story. Um, but ultimately, how long do you support old technologies and be backwards, backwards compatible? And what sort of problems does that introduce in your organization? And so in this case, if your application or website or whatever was relying on SSL version 3 and IE6, you know, at some point you got to make a call to move on past that. And that may be disruptive, but it's a lot more disruptive to do it in the middle of a crisis. Yeah. With exactly. very little notification and very little ability to assess the impact. Um, and sometimes it just knee jerk patching may not be the right answer. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. Patch, 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 patch. But there are times when a patch introduces problems. We talked about it last week on the show with Palo Alto. They broke some critical stuff by accident in their firewall with, with a version upgrade. Right? Now, mind you, I'm not saying anybody could easily figure that out. And I'm not saying don't patch. But I'm saying there are negative consequences to patching. And that has to be taken into account. 95% of the time, the answer is probably to patch. But it isn't an automatic, thoughtless act. Yeah, and especially in this this particular poodle case where you're actually turning off, I mean, you you literally are disabling functionality, and uh, it, it's it's just uh, I think we can all agree that hey, we should have all moved off of SSL v three long time ago, but we didn't, 
And and so now we're trying to do it with a gun to our head, and it's not going very well for a lot of organizations. Yeah. And, and you know, by the way, I still, I, I, I would love for any of our listeners who are aware of any organizations uh, that have been impacted by either Heartbleed, Shellshock, or Poodle. I know, there, I know of two that were impacted by uh, Heartbleed. There was one in Canada, and there was one other one. Uh, but other other than that, I haven't, you know, I, I've not heard of any. And so is that because, you know, we, we responded so quickly? Is it because they weren't as exploitable as we assumed they were? Uh, you know, what, why, why is that? Uh, those are, those are some things that I'm, I'm interested in because, you know, at the end of the day, most of us spent an incredible amount of money and resources responding to these things and is that was that the right play i don't know maybe it was but i'm 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 curious so anyhow uh moving on off of that story to our last one of the day data breach today has a story called defending against government intrusions steps oh so let me let me give you the the byline steps to take in a post-Snowden era. All right. This story's my fault. But this is something we're going to hear more and more and more. Right? This is a, a absolute link bait, talk bait, call for papers bait sort of topic. So isn't, so the, I, isn't the way to, to, to stop the Snowden problem to just not let your contractors access your confidential data? I think the appropriate way to stop Snowdens are to not be an evil organization, mm. and and not breach the Constitution on a regular basis and do things that it is against the liberty and freedom of your citizens. Wow, that's pretty deep. I, but you know what? I bet that doesn't really fit into a a, a PowerPoint very well. No, and it's fairly political, and it doesn't sell blinky boxes. No, no. So, so uh, the the uh, you know kind of following on to your your rant, they they came up with some uh, some suggestions on how to uh, handle this sort of thing in a post Snowden era. Before we get into that, let me just say, in my view, you cannot keep government state-level folks out if they really want in. Oh, absolutely. I just want to put that out there to begin with. It's a, it's a bit of a losing battle, I, I think. And, you know, and I know we'll get a dozen emails from people being, you know, accusing of us, accusing us of being defeatist. But, you know, the, the reality is if you, you know, if your adversary is the NSA or, you know, the FSB or, you know, the APT1, uh, they're probably going to find a way in some way, even if that's an employee, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So just have to be a, a cognizant of your, your adversary. And I think that, you know, the best you can really hope for is to make it, make it expen- yourself an expensive target. What I found is I clearly don't do anything important enough because no really attractive blonde foreign agents have tried to seduce me. Yet, I mean, now that you have a podcast, you may that may happen. That you know, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. <laughs> none are in the room at the moment that I that I know of. Maybe it's your cat. <laughs> He's a good-looking cat. I'll give him uh, that anyway. <laughs> All right. Let's, so our, let's let's get through this story. So our, the uh, the first. First item they they mention is to get your top executives involved. And Good general infosec advice. Yep, got to get that buy in. And I, I'll tell you, I'm not aware of many execs who are not involved these days. I would take this a step further and not say get them involved, but educate them properly. Yeah, yeah. Bob, you know, Bob has told me that he's been in quite a few. Uh, executive meetings at different companies, and uh, you know they, they they talk a lot about this Snowden 
scenario, right? And and they talk about it in the context of, you know, they, they've already preordained what the solution is. And now they're trying to figure out how to get, how to back into, you know, the, the, uh, the, pro- how to define the problem so it maps the solution they want to achieve, which, which by the way, is to limit what information contractors can access. Sure. Because, because that is apparently, you know, the paragon of the problem. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the source of the problem is, is the con- is contractors if you whittle them out if you don't allow them access well you know the problem apparently goes away so yeah um the next next uh, option or next idea they have is to guard your supply chain and by the way here's where it starts to kind of go off into into the weird land right so so, you know, when I started reading this, I started to think to myself, you know, this seems like a good list, you know, get your executives involved. Okay, I'm on board with that, you know, kind of table stakes thing, guard the supply chain. We all talk about supply chain risks, Fazio, Mechanical, and Target makes sense. Um, yeah, so the NSA reportedly, and I'm quoting here, the NSA reportedly has the ability to intercept computer equipment shipments, divert them to a bugging facility, and then return them to be delivered to the intended recipients, but knowing about this capability and guarding against it are two different matters, Moss said. Although one potential solution is to only buy anonymously. The first thing that comes to mind is don't let them know you're buying anything, which is which seems really irrational, he said. But such an approach creates logistical challenges for enterprises. You can't go to CompUSA, who by the way is not in business anymore, to buy all of your servers. So not at all <laughs> what I thought this was uh, going to be about, I think a company can't, you know, a, a corporation, you can't, you, you know, at some point you've got to trust your supply chain. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what to do with that. If you are, if you really as a company are worried about the NSA infiltrating and, you know, intercepting your server shipments, I don't know how to help you. Yeah, and how exactly you're going to go about securing that? Uh, create your own shipping company? Yeah, I, I, I just don't know. I don't know how to how to avoid that. You know, so yes, you can probably somehow figure out how to get servers that are, you know you you have some comfort level. And by the way, for only a period of time, right? Because at some point, if the, if okay. you are in their sites, they are going to figure it out. So let's assume for a moment that it's a foreign government that's after you, right? And that your own government, and we'll use the context of the U.S., is actually following the Constitution and is not monitoring its own citizens. So one thing I could say here that's actually legitimate and valid is be careful buying foreign-built equipment. Yeah. Right? You know, don't Fair. buy Chinese routers. Fair. If, yeah, if you're worried about the Chinese... Right. Uh, uh, yep. Uh, I'm with you. Makes that, sense. Just, I'm just trying to add some value here, man. No, I, I, I think that. I mean, that makes sense. Um, trying to get the listeners something for their time. So the the next uh, next item is to travel with less. And you know, continuing on with with some of the crazy. And by the way, I've I've heard this. You know what? I actually agree with this one. Yeah, I know. I've heard the, this one is very common. Right. And so the point is that a lot of organizations really limit what you as a business traveler take with you to foreign countries. And, and then when you do come back, a lot of times they'll actually destroy the device they sent you with, you know, so they'll give you a burner laptop or a burner tablet or phone or whatever. And, uh, you know, and, and then they'll destroy it when it gets back. I know quite a few companies that do this, especially when they go to China. And I'll tell you, it was um, it was a little unnerving when I went to China, and I for uh, for an entire week I didn't let my backpack out of my sight. So, kind of interesting times, but um, but yeah, I, I, I certainly understand that. Um, I think I think that's becoming pretty common practice. The next item is to record everything, and you know they're really talking about logs here, which you know I. I might disagree with 
the intent behind what they're trying to do because you know if you're trying to prove that the NSA is doing something on your network I you know I'm not I'm just not sure what you're going to accomplish with uh, with logs but you know whatever adopt open source I know you're going to love this one I I when I saw this one I'm like Andy is so on board with this one because you know open source is uh you know free of this and you know their point is that hey the NSA can't issue a national security letter to a uh, open source project like they can right. uh, you know obviously to uh, the likes of Microsoft and Apple and tell you on what and on. if you have the ability to audit every single bit of that open source code for any backdoors third-party avenues for infiltration, exfiltration of data, anything that shouldn't be there, then rock on. Go for open source. But the reality is 99.99% of people don't have that capability and aren't going to pay to do it. So I don't think open source is any more secure than closed source because you're not personally auditing that code. So, no. <laughs> Well, I think it also discounts the whole concept of, uh, uh, you know, if it's open source, that that means somebody could, you know, the NSA, let's just continue on with the tinfoil hat brigade here, right? The NSA could have a, a open source contributor as part of the team on any given Absolutely. product. Absolutely. And I get it, open source fans, you'll probably send me some hate tweets, bring them on, I'm, I'm ready for them. But the reality is, the whole benefit from a security standpoint of open source is anybody can look at the code, but nobody's looking at the code. And by the way, after every single one of these big vulnerabilities that's come out, you know, Heartbleed, Shellshock, Poodle, what's one of the first thing that gets asked? Did, did the NSA do this? Did the NSA know about it? Did they, you know, were they complicit in it? You know, and and by the way, uh, to, because I know the NSA is probably listening to this. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment one way or the other. If you did it, great. If you didn't, great. Don't really care. I'm not, not in it for the the politics. Point is, as you said, right? It's the it's six in six of on one hand and half a dozen on the other. It's the same. You know, it's very similar threats, right? You you know, on the one hand. They can issue a, a national security letter or otherwise bully a closed source vendor to do something. And on the other hand, they can put in their crap code that nobody's going to look at anyway. So what did you get? You know, you got some, some, uh, some false hope and promises. So anyhow, moving on, uh, simplifies the last one. And, you know, basically <laughs> they're, they're, their uh, example was if you use WordPress, don't have 59 plugins. Which I, I can't disagree with that. The, the the smaller your threat service, the better. That's that's kind of basic blocking and tackling in InfoSec. Uh, and yeah, so that that apparently is how you defend yourself against government institutions. Now you know, and now you are prepared to uh, to protect yourself against the NSA. <laughs> so which my brain <laughs> I know now now I will say this the last one is probably a decent you know recommendation in general which is reducing your tax service I got a problem with that no I think that's you know that's um, that's very you know, very fundamental security practice I definitely agree Anyhow, that is the the show again for this week. And uh, as usual, we appreciate you listening. And uh, to all of our new listeners, welcome and thank you for listening. Hope you uh, hope you're enjoying it. And to those that you of you who have been around for a while, thank you. Love uh, love talking to you each week. And if you have any feedback, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find the links to the stories we talk about. Uh, on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can find the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can find Mr. Khaled on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. 
And with that, we will talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Hope this was a good show for you. Talk to you soon. Take care. You want to uh, you want to do a podcast tonight? No, f- that. The hell with you and your podcast. You want to talk about your your uh, your your plane shit? Could could you? Your plane shit. Your 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 taking pictures of planes. Wow, you need a hell of a laxative for plane shit. <laughs> those those wings would hurt. The landing gear gets caught. Yep. Ow. 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 Hang on. I was trying to tweet something and clearly I failed.